John Calvin once said, no man is excluded from calling upon God. The gate of salvation is set open unto all men. Neither is there any other thing which keepeth us back from entering in, save only our unbelief. As we enter this Christmas season, our natural inclination is to focus, of course, on the first coming of Christ. Yet we've been studying our way through the book of Revelation where the focus is on the second coming of Christ. Yet it's significant, uh, the significance of those two days in history is what makes every other day in between those two days so profoundly important to the eternity of all mankind. Because as we'll see, as we study our way through this book, there is a day coming. A day that was fixed in time before time itself. A day when all men will stand before Christ to give an account of their lives. And on that day, there will be no more debates about who Jesus really was. There will be no more arguments about whether or not what he taught was actually true. And there will be no time left for excuses about why we didn't live the life he created us to live. No, on that day there will only be you and him and a reckoning for what you did with the life he gave you. Which again is still what makes every day before that day so profoundly important. Scottish theologian William Barclay once said there are two great days in a person's life. The day we're born and the day we discover why. Yet the sad reality is most people reject the life they were meant to live for Christ for a different kind of life. They reject freedom in Christ, choosing instead bondage to self. Because there's only one way that you can actually experience true freedom. It's in Christ alone. There is no other way to ever truly be free in this life. Free from fear, free from sin, free from doubt, free from everything that imprisons you, that holds you back, that keeps you from living up to the potential that he embedded in your DNA when he was knitting you together in your mother's womb. There is no other way to truly live free than to live in Christ. And so in his great mercy, the mercy of God, he offers us a new life, salvation from the old and freedom in the new available, of course, to all of mankind, which is why the Apostle Paul said, for freedom Christ has set us free, Galatians 5.1. He sets you free so that there's no longer anything that can keep you from becoming exactly who you were created to become. And so according to Paul, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, which means when you're in Christ, you are free from the grip of fear that condemnation brings. You're also dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.11, which means you are free from the shackles of sin and you have eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.23, so you're free to pursue whatever God calls you to in this life because your future is secure in the next. See, when you're in Christ Jesus, every single thing in this world that exists to enslave you and keep you from becoming all that God created you to be, as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you have been set free from every single bit of it. Which is why Christians never struggle with fear or sin or a lack of confidence in doing what God has called us to do. Uh-oh. Houston, we have a problem, right? If in Christ, we've truly been set free from everything that exists on this earth to hold us back from being everything we were designed and created to be, then why do we struggle with the weight of fear and sin and doubt? Amen. Well, it isn't because he hasn't held up his end of the bargain. 
No, every single thing that Jesus said he would accomplish on this earth, he accomplished, including a permanent victory over sin, death, and every power of hell that conspires to imprison us. So why do we still struggle with the very things Jesus set us free from? Why do we sometimes still live as if we're in bondage to everything he already conquered? It's not because he's holding us back. Right, whether it's hate or fear or greed or idolatry, anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, uh, a lack of faith or trust or peace or joy, I mean, pick your poison, whatever it is that is holding you back from the life you know that you could and should be living. None of it, not one shred of what is holding you back today is his doing. Okay, the fact is we live in prisons that we build around ourselves. We choose, sometimes daily, we choose to live in bondage to things he set us free from the moment our lives were hidden in Christ. We allow ourselves to be subjugated by fear, sin, and doubt to the point that we live as if Jesus never set us free, even though every single thing that is holding you back today was nailed to a Roman cross and put to death once and for all 2,000 years ago. Right, because although Jesus rose from the dead, listen, the power of fear, sin, uh, doubt to rule over your life, those things did not rise with him. Those are things we willingly resurrect and keep on life support by our own doing. Now listen, it's bad enough that we Christians have been uh, set free, uh, having been set free, often live as if we haven't. That's one thing. But how much worse is it when we live in fear, doubt, and defeat that we're telling the rest of the world this is what it looks like to be a Christian? Because look, this is a real point here. God is calling this world out of darkness and into the light. The light that we're supposed to be walking in and representing in all the dark places around us. That's why he came the first time. Because when he comes the second time, it will be too late. Too late to do anything about it, and yet because of the mercy of God, he gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, as we'll see in our story today, to repent and believe and prepare for what is coming. That's his job. Our job is to first of all tell the world about the freedom that is available to them in Christ, and then to show them what that looks like by living like we've actually been set free, because we have. And by the mercy of God, he's going to give everyone else in this world the same opportunity to experience the same freedom that we now have in Christ, albeit in the most sobering of means, which is what he shows John in a vision, as we'll see as we continue our sermon series, working our way through Revelation, so that we understand why he's planning to do what he's going to do in the last days just before he comes back again, because what we see uh, as uh, terror, fear, and calamity is actually the mercy of God at work offering salvation to a world that refuses to listen uh, before it's too late, right? Uh, so let's turn there together. We'll pick the story back up where we left off last time. And let's see if we, like John, can get a better understanding of these terrifying events that unfold before him. They are coming as a precursor uh, to the coming of Christ. These dates are all mixed together. so. If, you, if you're in trouble following me today, go back and listen to the other messages where we see how the seals and trumpets and bowls are all tied in together. So Revelation 8, where we left off last time, we'll begin with the first five verses. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. 
Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake. So back in chapter six, uh, we saw uh, Jesus open the first six seals on the scroll in his hand, inaugurating a time of great tribulation on the earth that precedes his return. And then in chapter seven, there was a, a, a parenthetical pause, if you will, in the sequence of the seals being opened so that we could see what was happening in heaven at the opening of the sixth seal as the church is taken up from the earth, spared the wrath of God, having suffered the wrath of men and united in worship around the throne of heaven where people from all tribes and tongues and nations are worshiping Jesus together as one. And so now in chapter eight, the sequence of the seals being opened is picked back up as the seventh and final seal is opened and we're introduced to seven angels and seven trumpets. And just to, uh, just to step back for a moment and look at the bigger picture, there are three major series of judgments in this book, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, as we'll see in the coming weeks. And although all three series of judgments cover the same period of tribulation, they're not all the exact same event described with different imagery as some have suggested, because with all three sets of judgments, the intensity of the plagues that come with them clearly increase progressively. For example, the seals affect a fourth of the earth, as we'll see, uh, as we see in chapter six, verse eight, while the trumpets affect a third of the earth. Many more people, as we'll see in chapter eight, while the bulls complete the wrath of God, as we'll see in chapter 16, verse 17. So the relationship between the three sets of judgments is best understood as sort of a, a spiral of increasing severity as we move from seals to trumpets to bowls. There's an increase in the pace and the severity of the plagues they bring. And so think of it this way, the, the trumpets are an expansion of the seventh seal and the bowls an expansion of the seventh trumpet, all describing different aspects of judgment being poured out on the earth and yet all connected and a part of the same period of tribulation. So understanding that, back to the story at hand, the seventh seal is opened and something shocking happens. Because up to this point, there's been nonstop praise and worship going on around the throne. Imagine the sound, the sheer volume of sound as angels, elders, other divine creatures, and billions of Christians worship Jesus together continuously. I mean, just think about the, the sound, the immensity of the sound going on around the clock nonstop, and then all of a sudden, upon the opening of the seventh seal, everything stops. Silence for 30 solid minutes. Not a sound, breathless silence. Try to imagine it. After the ongoing nonstop roar of voices around the clock worshiping together, complete silence. I went to seminary in England, and the first day of orientation, we were in the chapel, and the president of the grad school, the seminary, stood up on the stage, and he said, we're gonna go over the policies and practices here at the school, so you know what to expect while you're here. But before we do any of that or anything else, 
He said, we're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us today. And then very unceremoniously, he bowed his head and he said, Father, would you show us the way forward? Was that 30 seconds? How uncomfortable does that make you feel? How awkward. That day at the chapel that went on for three to four solid minutes, not a sound. Seemed like an hour. It was so Deeply unsettling, no one moving, no one praying out loud, just silence, until finally a woman in the back of the room began to weep softly, and then another, and then another, and then someone eventually started to sing quietly a song of worship, and before long, everyone was lifting their voices in praise and worship and adoration and wonder of Jesus whose Holy Spirit had filled that room. And there, without any instruments or any human guidance, we worshiped him together, everyone singing a different song. It was a sound like uh, anything, unlike anything else I'd ever heard. It was the most beautiful uh, harmony of voices, of hearts, of souls you could ever imagine, and it went on and on and on until eventually our hearts were ready to receive whatever God had for us next. That day, and that school year for the seminary. You understand, there's something to be said in preparation of God doing something great in your life. There's something to be said for simply being still before him, silent, with great expectation of what he will do next. We see that here in great power. We certainly see that in other places in scripture, Habakkuk 2.20, Zephaniah 1, 7, and 8, Zechariah 2, 13, to name a few, and that's exactly what was happening here in our story because out of this 30 minutes of silence in heaven, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. It's a, it's a round pan made of gold where incense and burning coals were mixed together to create a sweet fragrance as an offering of worship to God, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then something strange happens. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. In fact, if you read verse three in the Hebrew, it's more literally translated as he was given much incense to offer consisting of the prayers of all the saints. In other words, the incense is the prayers, which agrees with chapter five, verse eight, where the bowls of incense are clearly identified with the prayers of the saints as well. Prayers on behalf of those facing the intense tribulation to come. And so there's a holy silence in heaven that not only signals the next wave of God's wrath, but it also gives him the opportunity to hear from his people on behalf of those who have yet to repent and believe and prepare for the coming of the Lord. 
And when incense, the prayers are added to the hot coals, a cloud of fragrant smoke rises from the altar as a symbol of divine acceptance. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5.2. And this scene in heaven likewise suggests that there's something sacrificial about genuine prayer and the fact that both the believer and his prayer entered the presence of God by way of the altar. So the angel takes the censer full of the prayers of God's people on behalf of those who are still on the earth and throws, throws it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake just before the seven angels raised their trumpets to sound another series of seven judgments. Make no mistake. This is the mercy of God at work on the earth among those who have yet to come to Christ. He's giving them an opportunity to repent before the next and most intense judgment yet befalls them. Look, without an opportunity for repentance, all that is available for mankind apart from Christ is hopelessness. Okay, until we recognize our desperate and utter need for a faithful, righteous, perfect, holy Savior and repent of our sin and turn to Him, we're without a hope in this world. In fact, we're, we're without a hope for tomorrow. We're without a hope for today. <clears throat> Just look at the state of our world today. The depravity, the corruption, the abuse of leadership, the rejection of God's perfect will. Listen, even among many people who know all about Jesus. You understand when the Bible says that God pursues lost people, it's not just lost people outside of the church. It's lost people inside the building as well. Because God our Savior desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. Not just non-religious people, no. He wants everyone to actually know Him, and that includes church people who don't actually know Him yet. So look, if you don't recognize His voice in your life, if His Word doesn't speak directly to you, if there's no fruit of the Spirit coming from you, as described in Galatians 5, and 23, then listen, no matter how involved in the church or the ministry you may be, you might need to ask yourself, not do I know about him, but do I actually know him? There's a passage in Hebrews 4.1 that says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That word, by the way, fear, is fabio in the ancient Greek. It's to be seized by alarm or terrified, to be afraid. It's It's entirely meant to convey a very real emotional state of being terrified at the prospect of anyone not truly being saved, even though they profess to be. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. He's saying it's not enough to simply say you're a Christian. It's not enough to simply attend the church. It's not enough to simply participate in religious activities. You actually have to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the fact that there are people who attend church meetings and participate in the life of the church and profess to be Christians without ever having actually entered into that relationship, that should rack you with fear. Fear that there are human souls all around us and even some in the church who are dying without the eternal hope of Christ. 
And so he's continually and evidently right up through the great tribulation, giving lost people, including those who are a part of the church, those who know all about him but don't actually know him. He's giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and be saved. Because look, you may be religious, but Jesus is not going to be a part of your life if he cannot rule over all of your life. He doesn't want a part of you. He wants all of you. And nothing less than that will do, okay? Listen, God didn't plan your life before you were born and then form you in your mother's womb and then send his son to die for you so that he could be a part of your life, to rule over a portion of your life. And yet a lot of people treat him exactly that way, as a provider, a healer, a protector, a friend, without ever recognizing him as their Lord without ever truly knowing him for who he actually is. In fact, when uh, Jesus describes that final judgment day in the gospel according to Matthew, he leaves no middle ground when it comes to the lordship of Christ in your life. Either you're completely under his rule or you've completely rejected his rule. There's no middle ground even for the most religious, the most moral, the most spiritual people among us. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I never knew you. You see, what Jesus wants is to know you. And he wants you to know him as Lord. Of course, it's, it's not so much that people don't want to know Jesus. We just want to know him on our own terms. We want Jesus as a part of our lives more than we want him ruling over all of our lives. Often we're more interested in what he can do than we are in who he is. Just, if you just ask someone who's a believer, a Christian, who is Jesus to you? You'll most often get answers along the lines of, well, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my provider, he's my healer, he's my savior, he's my protector. Jesus is the one who gives me peace. Well, of course, all, we all want that Jesus, which is not wrong, by the way. But notice every one of those descriptions focuses on what he does rather than who he is. What you won't very often hear when you ask a Christian the question, who is Jesus to you? You won't very often hear someone say, Jesus is my master, my ruler, my Lord. And yet who did Jesus say would enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the one who is under the Lordship of Christ. Why? Because doing the will of the Father is a function of knowing Jesus. It's not what gets you into heaven. It's proof in your life that you know and are known by the only one who can. It doesn't mean you'll be the perfect Christian, by the way, but it does mean there will be no part of your life that is off limits to him because you've submitted all of it under his rule in your life, right? To say that Jesus is my peace, my protection, my strength, my provider, those descriptions are all wonderful, but they say nothing of our own lives in relationship to him other than the fact that he does great things for us. Yet when you say Jesus is my Lord, well then you're announcing to the world that your life is submitted to his simply because of who he is. So yes, it's important to recognize what he does. Of course it is, but how much more important that we recognize who he actually is? 
which is why when Jesus returns to this earth, there's only one name that the Bible says will be written on his thigh, according to Revelation 19, and it isn't peace giver or healer or protector or provider or friend. No, there's only one name that is inscribed on his own body, and that is the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why? Because that's who Jesus is. You see, it's so important that we recognize not just what he does, but who he actually is. And yet that's exactly what so many of us are missing in the church today. Not just what Jesus does, but who he is. Because once you understand that he is a faithful, righteous, just, perfect, holy, uncreated, divine being through whom all things were created and owe their very existence to, it's only then that you can even begin to recognize the hopelessly unspannable chasm between you and God without Jesus. A.W. Tozer writes, the moral shock suffered by us through our mighty break with the high will of heaven has left us with a permanent trauma affecting every part of our nature. You see, there's no hope, none whatsoever, not only for all of eternity, but for the rest of today without Jesus which is why today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent and be saved if you are in fact lost without Christ. It's the mercy of God that allows us to continue breathing, to continue living without him. It's the mercy of God that gives us time to repent and turn to him before his final judgment comes and it's too late. Let's keep reading verses six through 12. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green, the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So the people of earth are once again given an opportunity for repentance, and yet as we'll see as we work through this book, most continue to reject him. And so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepare to blow them. And we don't know uh, for what it's worth the exact identity of these seven angels. They may well be the seven archangels spoken of in Jewish tradition in the third century BC book of Tobias, chapter 12, verse 15, where Raphael is identified, I'm quoting, as one of the seven holy angels who present the prayers of the saints and enter into the presence of the glory of the Holy One. And then in 1 Enoch chapter 20, these are apocryphal writings, this is not biblical scripture, but 1 Enoch chapter 20 verses two through eight, the names of these seven archangels are actually listed as Uriel, Raphael, Ragwell, Michael, Serakel, Gabriel, uh, and Remiel, otherwise known as the angels of presence which are not only mentioned throughout the book of Jubilees, which is another ancient Jewish writing, but it's actually a designation that goes all the way back to Isaiah 63, 9, which happens to be a passage of scripture about the mercy of God. 
It, it just underscores the point that as harsh as these judgments are, they're intended to bring people to repentance, which is why the judgments themselves are limited in scope, as we see in the verses we just read. And so the seven angels blow the seven trumpets, which are used throughout Scripture as instruments of battle, or in this case as heralds of the day of God's wrath, which again is intensified from the opening of the seals on the scroll. And yet again, as harsh as these judgments are, they are limited in scope. But why, right? I mean, if God's point at this point in the story is to destroy the earth, then why not just get on with it? Why unleash these judgments only on a portion of the earth? Well, it's the mercy of God. He's giving those still on the earth an opportunity to repent. And for those who remain unconvinced, he provides the proof to believe. In other words, the claims in this book, the prophecies of what is yet to come aren't hollow words. They're not empty promises. No, every word will be fulfilled. And so he renders judgment on the earth to prove it without utterly destroying the entire planet and everyone on it. Why? Because the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3.9. As harsh as these judgments are, This is the mercy of God at work by proving his word to be true to an unbelieving world. And of course, that's how he's going to do that at the end of this age. I wanna take a few moments right now and talk about how he offers proof that his word is true to an unbelieving world today. Because in the first three centuries AD, including the time that John wrote this book, simply professing to be a Christian could get you killed. In fact, there are, of course, still places around the world today where professing to be a Christian can still get you killed, unlike America, where professing to be a Christian won't even get you noticed, because for the most part, people in our culture couldn't care less what you say you believe in. However, what will most definitely get you noticed in this culture is actually living the life that the word Christian represents. You see, that's the proof to an unbelieving world that God's word is true today. And that will not only get you noticed, it will get you ridiculed, hated by some, at times even persecuted, because the ruler of this world inherently wants to subdue the people and the message of Christ in order to keep them from believing. And so listen, if you've never experienced any resistance in your life from other people whatsoever in response to the way you live, the decisions you make, the conversations you have, the reasons you give for why you do the things that you do as a follower of Christ, if you never experience any pushback from other people because of what you believe, then there is a reasonably good chance that you're either one, living a life relatively isolated from unbelievers, which is not a good thing, Or two, you're not actually living the life that the word Christian describes, which is also not a good thing. John Rice once wrote, the world never burned a casual Christian at the stake. You cannot live the life that Jesus Christ modeled for us. The life that we as followers are called to live, you cannot truly live that life and never experience any hostility or mistreatment or discrimination from other people. In fact, Jesus promised we would, right? He said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. John 15, 20, his early disciples certainly understood that the apostle Paul wrote, uh, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3, 12, the early church fathers understood this as well. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch wrote in the 
second century, the believing have in love the character of God the Father by Jesus Christ, by whom if we're not in readiness to die into his suffering, his life is not in us. It's a universal truth for all believers across all ages. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sailed so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. The idea that we can somehow live as Christ called every one of his followers to live and yet somehow never be at odds with the culture around us, that is a complete and utter fallacy, which has not only been understood by his followers throughout the ages as we've seen, but it needs to be understood by his followers today because there's nothing about what Jesus or his followers before us have said in that regard that has changed. The problem is most of us are not conditioned for conflict when it comes to our faith. Because we've been raised in a culture that until recently has historically identified with the Christian faith, at least culturally, if not always theologically. And because most people don't like conflict, don't like to be at odds with other people, I, I certainly don't. It feels much more natural to try and blend in with the culture than to live in such a way that is inevitably at odds with the culture like Jesus did. And so here's where the whole thing gets sticky because if everything that the culture around us did was purely evil, and at the same time if everything the church always did was purely righteous, well then having to be at odds with the culture at times would be a fairly easy reality to accept. However, as we all know, the church doesn't always make good decisions while simultaneously the unbelieving world can do some really great things at times. And so again, it gets muddy here because it isn't wrong for us to partner with unbelievers in doing great things for other people. In fact, uh, we should do that. It also isn't wrong for us to call out the inconsistencies between the church's words and the church's actions. We should do that as well. The fact is, there have been times where I've personally seen non-Christians act more like Jesus than Christians, which makes it very easy for us though to justify a lifestyle of solidarity with the culture around us while vehemently criticizing and even rejecting the church of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what an awful lot of professing Christians are doing today on an ongoing basis. It's become very popular, but listen, if you truly are a Christian, whether you like it or not, you don't belong to this culture. You belong to Jesus Christ and his church. And as such, you have a mandate from God himself to lay your life down, persecution and all, for your brothers and sisters who are in Christ, which is the proof to an unbelieving world that his word is true when they see it being lived out in your life. Hebrews 13, 12 through 14 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We don't belong to this world. We belong to him and to one another. And going to him outside the camp and bearing the reproach he endured, by the way, is a metaphor for leaving behind our love for this world, for popular culture and our desire for its approval and instead embracing the reproach of Jesus Christ and his gospel, embracing the disapproval that we will inevitably receive from the culture around us when we choose to follow him. Okay, look, if your life is never in tension with the culture around you, then maybe you don't actually believe what you think you do. 
And others certainly won't see the proof of the life of Christ at work in yours because again, Jesus commanded us to live a life that will most assuredly, without exception, find us in direct conflict with the culture around us at times in our lives. You understand the, <clears throat> the harsh treatment that we're promised to endure at times at the hand of the world because of our testimony to the word of God at work in our lives. That harsh treatment we're promised to experience also happens to be the mercy of God working through us for the sake of those who are lost and need to see a real life example of the spirit of Christ at work in this world. That's why we're to embrace it. It's why your testimony is so important. It's the proof people need to believe that God's word is true when they see it actually working in your life. I read a quote the other day, it said, what God is bringing you through at this very moment will be the testimony that will bring someone else through. No mess, no message. Let's finish the story for today, verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Uh, this verse 13 serves as a transition between the four plagues brought by God upon nature in order to lead humankind to repentance and the subsequent demonic woes that are coming where people will be directly subjected to the forces of the abyss. The previous plagues we've just witnessed were called forth by angelic beings. Those that are about to follow are announced by a bird of prey hovering overhead. And so unlike the first four trumpets which affected the source of people's life, nature, the last three fall upon the people themselves. And so along with the opportunity to repent and the proof to believe, God now issues a warning to prepare, to prepare for what is coming which we're gonna cover in the coming chapters. The question for today, the question for today is, are you prepared? Are you ready for the coming of the Lord? Are you ready to meet him face to face? If that final trumpet were to sound today, are you prepared to meet Jesus? Because if you're not, it's only his mercy that has kept you here this long because he loves you. And more than anything else, he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. And so I'm asking you, do you know him? Not do you know about him, but do you actually know him? I can't think of any other question that I could ask you this morning which is more important than this one single question. Do you know Jesus Christ? Because every single aspect of your life, listen, every moment of this life and the next for all of eternity is forever affected by the answer to this one question. Do you know him? There's a yearning to know God present in every human soul, but sometimes because of our own hubris, arrogance, even ignorance, we search in vain to fill that void with everything but Christ, and yet he's the only remedy. He's the only satisfaction for what ails the human race. Apart from knowing Christ, at best, we're chasing after temporary distractions which in the end can never fill the hollow void in every human being who does not know God. And so I'm asking you, do you know him? I pray that question haunts the mind of every unbeliever until unable to escape it, they must confront the reality of either knowing Christ 
or being lost in blind hopelessness forever. Do you know him? I'm not asking how often you come to church. I'm not asking whether or not you were raised in a Christian home. I'm not asking how many ministries you're involved in or how many wonderful things you've done in his name in your lifetime. I'm simply asking you, do you know him? Because if you don't, you can. In fact, this very moment has been afforded to you by the mercy of God because he loves you and he's ready for you to know him. And the best part is all you have to do is repent and believe. Do you know him? Let's pray.